Hey there, my internet friends. Welcome to another Sermon MP3 from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. This is March 6, 2022. And this Sunday, we are now moving into the New Testament with our series called Finding Your Keys to the Kingdom. And today, along with communion, our message is entitled Fulfillment of the Promises. Hey, may God bless you as you listen. Do you remember the last time you made a promise, like a real promise? Not just when you're trying to justify uh, something you've been accused of. No, no, I promise. I didn't do that. But a real promise. I was trying to think back to myself this, this last week uh, of, of things that I made a promise of. And, and, I, and I couldn't really think of too much except maybe my wedding vows that, that I made a promise in 33 and a half years ago. Where I promised I would, you know guys, like this, right? Bathe weekly, uh, do the dishes, take out the garbage, shovel the snow, right? Something like that. But of course, there was also my baptismal promise that I had made 38 years ago where I would consider my old life to have died with Christ and now to follow him as my Savior and my Lord in resurrection power all the rest of the days of my life. I remember that promise. Last week, I was involved in some licensing interviews with uh, potential alliance pastors where we drill them on Bible questions, Bible knowledge, theology, polity, ministry experience, uh, and calling. And then afterwards, we get them to sign on a dotted line on some documents saying that they will promise to uphold a number of alliance theological and ministry expectations. And I remember doing and making those promises myself 31 years ago. And I guess there have probably been a few promises like that that I've made throughout my life. But interestingly, those promises have all been really linked to my part in God's promises in his word. I'm sure there's been other promises where I've, you know, I haven't had to swear on the Bible at court or anything like that yet. But we've all made promises. If you remember, we started this series a month ago tracking the theme of the promise of the kingdom of God throughout the Old Testament. First of all, from creation to Adam, and we all know that there was a bit of a pause there uh, that that initial kingdom promise didn't go too well, and there was the loss of Eden, right, that Edenic promise uh, in the garden. But then trying again through righteous Noah and his family, uh, God tries to reestablish the kingdom and get it going again, and we know how that went, right? And then there was the Tower of Babel incident, forcing uh, God to disinherit the nations and give them over to other gods. And God, though, kept a remnant for himself, Jacob. And then through Abraham, and then through Moses, and then a big leap forward to the man after God's own heart, David, that his kingdom and his throne would last forever. The kingdom of God was an ever-evolving promise of God to bring his rule upon the earth and to reinstate his imagers to represent and spread that kingdom to the ends of the earth. And wrapped around and supporting those, that kingdom were promises in the form of covenants that God gave to special individuals, but ultimately to a whole people. The first big one that we, we well, we went through Genesis and Noah, and, but now, uh, last, uh, the first couple of weeks ago, we went through Genesis 17. This was the big one. This is the one, the Abrahamic promise, right? Where Abraham becomes the father of the Jewish family of faith. And, and, he, and God says, I will make you fruitful, Abraham. I will make nations of you. 
and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. The covenants, if you kind of look at them, is, you know, we're all looking back in hindsight, but if, if you look at them, they're kind of like a spiritual breadcrumb trail pointing to a future Messiah, a future king. Ultimately, the plan of God was to restore the loss of his Edenic rule from, Abra- from Adam by eventually creating a people known as Israel, the Jews, and giving them an ultimate king one day, a king, a son of David. David becomes then a template for Messiah in Jewish thinking and theology. But what of this Messiah? Last week, looking at the genealogies of of Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew, we, we saw that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David, as well as a lot of other people that we don't recognize usually. Matthew's genealogy is specific to point out the, the priestly and the royal lines through, uh, through Israel's story, along with a few oddities like the unique appearances of four women in all of the male genealogy that we see. Women like Tamor and Rahab and Ruth and, and uh, uh, Bathsheba. Interestingly, none of these women are of Israelite descent and all of them have been associated in one way, shape, or form in some kind of a sex scandal in the history of God's people. All with prominent Israelites, Israelite men. Matthew could have highlighted some noble Hebrew women like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel and and he could have kind of pointed out some of those matriarchs of the faith, but instead he mentions a Canaanite, a Moabite, a Hittite woman, and a prostitute. The point of the genealogy of Matthew is to identify Jesus as the son of David, meaning that even with all the mixed bag of people that we have there, he was a descendant, he would be a descendant of David, and therefore a royal successor and a rightful heir to the throne and the kingdom of David. Now, the gospel, of Luke's genealo- the gospel of Luke's genealogy is a little bit different uh, kind of an animal. It's introduced to the reader at the beginning of Jesus' ministry rather than like Matthew's gospel it does, which is at the beginning of his birth. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and following, this is how it starts. When all the people were bap- being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son in whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old, the text says, when he began his ministry. And then Luke tracks back through Jesus' genealogy even further. and says he was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heel, and the son of Mathet. And then generations later, verse 31, who was also the son of David, the son of Jesse, and then even more generations later, verse 33, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, or in other words, Israel, the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham. Verse 36, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, 
the son of Kenna, the son of Enosh, and the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. So combining these genealogies, the gospel writers were intent on identifying Jesus as both the son of David while also being the son of God. Notice the acknowledgement of God himself at Jesus' baptism where Luke's genealogy begins. It says the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, we tend to think of that phrase in kind of a a declaration of sentimentality or some token of affection from the Father to the Son, but it's far more than that. When God refers to Jesus as the Son whom he loves, he's affirming the kingship of Jesus. God is authenticating Jesus' status as the divine human heir of the throne of David. Go back to 2 Samuel 7. We looked at this last week, verse 11 to 14. This is what it says. The Lord declares to David that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Oddly, the promise didn't seem to continue after David's kingdom was inherited by his son, Solomon. After that, the nation divides into two parts, with Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and after a succession of good and bad kings, mostly bad, the end result was Israel in the north is taken away into captivity, into exile, and ultimately, it's no more. But in time... God's covenant promise to David would be restored through Judah, the southern tribe of David, and eventually another descendant of David would be born in Bethlehem, in Judea, in the town of David. Eventually, another descendant of David would be born in a particular city we know because of Christmas. And I know this isn't Christmas, right? We're sort of in the, we, uh, yeah, we've gotten past, well, we're not even past all the snow yet, but we've gotten past the majority of winter, we hope. But that's okay. G- December 25 isn't Jesus' birthday anyway. So let's look at two passages that show God restoring the kingdom promise of the God of Israel. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 to 23. says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was, ble- was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was, a f- was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that is Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will conceive, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. 
Right. The miracle of the incarnation is that the son, this son of David, would also be the son of God. God with us. In that way, and only because of that way, could he be the one who would ultimately save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't just have, uh, just didn't uh, happen to come with a perfect genealogy that lined up with all the heroes of the faith of long ago. He didn't just happen to be born at the perfect time in the right place. This was, a, this was the long game of, of, of God, if you will. The God of Israel, the God of Adam and the God of Noah, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses and the God of David. Israel knew he was coming, this Messiah. They knew he was coming. He had been foretold since Eden as the Edenic promise to restore the kingdom of God on earth forever. He was the long-awaited king of the Jews. Jesus was the promised offspring of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. He is the beloved son of David and the son of God who would defeat once and for all the supernatural forces of evil triumphing over them by his cross. And of course, there were those who opposed his coming kingdom, right? Right from his birth on. I mean, you remember uh, a, a guy by the name of King Herod, Matthew 2, 1 to 6. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? That is the son of David. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Why? Because he was the son of God. When, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the Jewish people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah would be born. And they, go, they didn't scratch their head going, oh, we don't know. They said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this last part, this is just a shortened version of the quote from the prophet Micah. Micah 5.2 goes like this. But you, Bethlehem of Ratha, though you are small among the clans of Judah... Out of you will come for me one who is ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, listen to the wording here, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Notice how it points back to the Abrahamic covenant promise. Fellow Bible students, listen. It's no accident that Jesus came when he did and how he did. Nor who he was. He is the, he is the all ancient covenant promises fulfilled in one person. All of them are fulfilled in him. The covenant of Adam, the covenant of Noah, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses, and lastly, the covenant of David. He is the son of David and the son of God. And he alone then has the capacity to save you and me, in fact, a whole world from sin, right? 
That is his new covenant promise to you and to me. And think of how he saved us. So far in our series, we have not arrived biblically at the, at the work of Christ on the cross. You and I know that part of the story of God's covenant promises, but yet it's still to come in this book for us as we go through this series. We're not there yet, but this is Communion Sunday, so we have to kind of bring it out a bit, where we celebrate and own the new covenant of God in the body and the blood of Jesus the Messiah. We're all set here at the table. Hopefully at home you're all set with your bread and your cup so that we can come together and eat this meal. A meal that helps us reflect back on Jesus, on how Jesus saved us from our sins. This meal is actually piggybacked on the annual covenant-established Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples are eating and they're drinking this covenant-instituted Passover meal, and he directs their attention to a piece of unleavened bread, a bread that had not risen yet, reflecting back on the original Passover under Moses. And then he directs their attention to the cup of redemption. Again, a throwback of that old covenant promise. These elements are hearkening back on Israel's exodus out of Egypt. When Yahweh defeated the gods of Egypt and rescued his people from their oppressors, exiting them out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea. This is the meaning of our covenant communion meal as well. This last supper of Jesus, so to speak. He is our exodus. He is our savior, our redeemer, our rescuer. He is our victory. He is the one who parts the sea of sin and death and makes the only way possible for salvation to happen for you and for me. As Moses sings out in response to God's redeeming power, I think this should be our song as well. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed up your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. The Lord reigns forever and ever. The Passover and now for us communion are those beacon ceremonial meals that that call us back as a people to once again, time again and again and again, as often as we eat it, the scripture says. To remember, remember what? To, To remember that it takes believing loyalty and the covenant promises of God to remain his people. These Conjoined meals are the eternal reminders that Jesus is the divine Son, the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the God of gods, and that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they might be saved. There is nothing then that we should fear with God on our side. And this meal reminds us that there is a real spiritual battle still going on, but that our God, our great God alone saves from, and that we don't need to be afraid. Salvation is intrinsically in the very name of Jesus. The son was named Jesus. Why? As this angel told Joseph, because he would save his people from their sins. So when you utter the name of Jesus, that's what you're saying. You are saying he is the God who saves. What a marvelous, miraculous, glorious, redeeming name is the name of Jesus. Jesus.
Don't you just love that name? Do you remember the, the, the words of that old song? Maybe you join with me with, in with me on it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. But there's something about that name. Oh, there's something about that name, Jesus. Communion seems like an odd meal for the rest of the world. It seems rather bloody, rather gruesome. And it's not that part of it that we relish in, is it? It is in what it accomplished for us as a people. Could there have been another way? I don't know, I'm not God. I don't argue with that. But this is our meal. Amen? It's a covenant meal. New covenant. New covenant meal in the blood of Christ. And it is a meal for all who believe to participate in. If you remember when Jesus was eating this meal, the Passover meal with his disciples, at some point in the meal he kind of breaks away and he takes a piece of the unleavened bread and he breaks it, he gives thanks for it, and he offers it to his disciples. And I'm always astounded by who is at the table, right? A guy by the name of Peter who refused just a couple hours earlier to let Jesus wash his feet. And Jesus said, if you don't let me do this, Peter, you will have no part of me. You know, there's Thomas, he's there, and he's the forever doubter, right? It's my middle name, by the way. But he's there, and you can imagine the things that are going on in his head. And then there's Judas, the one who was condemned to destruction. You wonder what was going on in his head. Participating in a ceremonial meal that the people of God had celebrated since the time of Moses. In fact, God instituted and said, you must do this every year. It was a reminder that God is the ultimate victor. It is, a, it is a meal of loyalty and confession of faith, but it is the meal that reminds us of what is imparted to us as the people of God. Redemption, salvation, free and clear in Jesus' name. We did nothing to earn our salvation, did we? We know that. It was all on Jesus. And he just invites us to eat it, 
be part of it, to allow him to work in and through us and to make us into this people of shared covenant promise. So before we begin this morning in our covenant meal, I want you to just pause to pray just between you and the Lord and just remind him of your covenant loyalty to him. To thank him for the generations that came before you to lay the foundation for this covenant and those who preached it since the resurrection of Christ. Remember the promise to David that he would have a descendant, a son, who the Lord himself will raise up, and of his house and his kingdom, they will last forever. And now Jesus has come, and he is the son of David. He is the son of God. And he is still building this house. He has established it. He is the cornerstone, the foundation of it. But we are his house. And the Lord himself will continue to build us. The covenant promise to Abraham is still outstanding. That he will bless all the nations on the earth through David, or through Abraham and his descendants. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That means that when we partner together in this meal of covenant loyalty, we are saying, Lord, I'm going to be about your business. I'm going to get this kingdom out to the ends of the earth. For that is why Jesus came. That's why Abraham was made that promise and drawn out of Ur into Canaan. And I am part of that extension of the family of God and the house of God forever. So let's eat of this bread and this cup. There's going to be a lot of crunching going on with this bread, this rice cracker, and that's good. I think that will just remind us of how powerful this gospel is. Let's pray first and let's eat. Father, thank you for this meal, for this bread, for this cup. And Lord, today by eating it, we confirm on oath a promise to you that by our loyalty, we will live out the gospel of the kingdom of God in this world. To all those in our life network and beyond. And we partner with you in order to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And whatever that means for us to be able to do that, Lord, we pray that you would prepare us and train us and equip us. But thank you, Lord, most of all, you've given us your spirit to empower us for witness to the ends of the earth. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for Jesus, the name that is above every name. And God's people said, amen. Let's eat this together, house.